Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Hey, Jeff, for uh, stepping in last week and uh, speaking in my place. Uh, I went back and watched the lesson, and he did an amazing job. And I appreciate him making that connection that birds are the devil. If you haven't made that connection, go back and watch his message. Uh, and he did in that message talk about my fear of birds and Andrew Itson, our previous minister here, his fear of birds. And he left a little gift, his little bird prop. He left it on the Alabama box over here. And early in the week, I did notice it, but I didn't make a big deal out of it. I got a little chuckle and I went on about my business. Well, apparently I didn't point that out that I had noticed it because on Wednesday night, my my favorite children's minister, a dear friend, Colby Douglas, and my own wife schemed together to nearly give me a heart attack because on Thursday morning, as I was getting ready, I looked and right beside my face, less than a foot away, was this terrifying bird. Now, I'm a little ashamed to tell you, I had already brushed my teeth and walked out of the bathroom the first time and didn't even notice it with it less than a foot from my head, but I did notice it. And so today I'm not preaching on forgiveness because it's too soon. It's too soon. But I think I'll get there through some prayer, which is what I do want us to talk about today. So back in 2014, Admiral William McRaven at his alma mater, the University of Texas, delivered one of the most memorable graduation speeches that's ever been given. I don't know if you remember the graduation speech from your graduation, probably not, but his actually went viral. So Admiral McRaven is a really interesting guy. He retired from the Navy as a four-star admiral. He was a Navy SEAL. He had the privilege of serving as the ninth commander to the United States. Special Operations Command, U.S. SOCOM, under the Barack Obama administration. And on May the 2nd, 2011, he organized and oversaw what was called Operation Neptune Spear, which for many of us that early, I believe it was actually a Sunday morning, we learned that throughout the night, our military executed Operation Neptune Spear, which resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden, the mastermind and planner of the September the 11th attacks from 2001. Admiral McRaven has all kinds of amazing stories of heroics and bravery. But what made his speech on that day so memorable were the 10 lessons he shared about changing the world. I'm not going to share all 10. I just want to read to you the first lesson he shared on how to change the world. He said, every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they would do is inspect my bed. If I did it right, 
Corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you made your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It'll give you a small sense of pride and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you've had a miserable day, then you'll come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. All right, I don't agree with that at all, okay, because I'm not a bed maker, all right, and I hate to even confess that with my parents here today because they did raise me to make my bed every day, but I may or may not have married a woman who did not believe in making the bed, and she won, so I've learned the beautiful art of not making your bed. It's this principle that he shared that I want to key in on today that I think is so powerful. He said, if you want to do the little, if you want to do the big things right, you've got to do the little things right. Right, so we've been in this study in the book of Daniel, and we're going to close out our study today because we're going to shift gears and go to some other things, and let's just be honest, everything after this in the book of Daniel just gets really weird, and uh, we want to handle that in a Bible class, not in a sermon series, so we are going to come back to it. But I want us to think about the things that have gone on in Daniel's life, because for Daniel, he's been living in exile, and we've been using this series to remind us how to learn how to live with conviction in a culture of compromise and chaos. Today, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6, and in Daniel 6, things get very chaotic, because Daniel is faced with a situation that if he wants to live, he's going to have to compromise, or he can choose to live with conviction, and as a result he might die. And it's a really chaotic scene. And you just got to appreciate all of the things that Daniel has experienced up until this point. As a teenager, he's taken from his home in Jerusalem and he's walked over 900 miles to Babylon where he's going to be put in a different school. He's going to learn a different language, different customs. We've looked how he was even given a different diet or challenged to eat a different diet. We've had that whole situation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with bowing down to this giant statue. Well, by the time you get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is over 80 years of age. He's endured the kingdom of Babylon. He's lived so long that Babylon has fallen. And this new world power, this combination kingdom of Media and Persia, called the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, has come together to take down the world power of Babylon. And now this new government has taken place as the most powerful government on the planet. And here is Daniel, who has survived that entire battle, and now finds himself serving under a new government. But Daniel is so wise, he is so convicted by his faith that God continues to bless him. So King Darius is the new king, and he wants to figure out, how do I control this massive kingdom? So he's going to set apart 120 satraps, is what the Bible calls them. We might call them governors. And he's going to place them all around the territory of this empire to govern the people. But then over them, there's going to be three individuals called administrators, and they're going to oversee 
the governors, and they're going to answer directly to the king. And Daniel was selected as one of the administrators. But Daniel is so wise, he's so distinguished, he's so trustworthy that King Darius, after a period of time, is leaning toward making Daniel even a other two administrators where they would answer to him and he would answer directly to the king. Well, as you could imagine, when people get promotions or about to get promotions that you think you deserve, they got a little jealous. And they devised this plan that they've got to take him out. They've got to remove him from the picture. But they've come to realize that the only way they're going to get Daniel out of the way is to use his religion against him. So they go to King Darius, and they use Darius's pride against him because he's the most powerful man on the planet. And they said, hey, King Darius, we think you ought to make a law that for one month, for 30 days, nobody should pray to anybody else or any other God other than you. Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Everybody just praising you and asking you for everything. That actually sounds terrible now that I say it out loud. But here's a prideful man. And he says, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. So he signs into law, no prayer for 30 days. The weird thing about the Medes and the Persians is once you sign it into law, it can never be changed. It can only be, you can only sign a new law to counteract the old law. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And so he signs a law, not realizing what's going to happen. Well, John read to us what Daniel did as soon as he heard about the law being signed to his house, went to the top floor, opened his window toward Jerusalem, he hit his knees, and he prayed three times a day. Well, just like they knew he would, they've been watching, they catch him, they carry him before the king, they say, hey king, don't you know about that law that you signed into effect? Yeah, I remember the law. Well, Daniel's been praying, we caught him. And the punishment for praying within that 30-day period is you're going to be thrown into a cave filled with hungry lions wow, that sounds amazing. Very violent, does it not? And all of a sudden, Darius realizes what's going on, and he's heartbroken because he loves Daniel. And so for the rest of the day, he's trying to figure out a loophole, a workaround. How can I get Daniel out of this situation? But as the evening comes near, and these pestering administrators and governors keep reminding him of this law, he realizes there's nothing he can do. And so they lead Daniel to the cave filled with hungry lions. They throw him into the cave. And they seal the cave shut with a massive stone. All night long, <clears throat> King Darius just living with a lot of anxiety and stress. He can't sleep. He doesn't want any entertainment, doesn't want to eat. <clears throat> and uh, Bo, by the next morning, soon as daylight breaks, he rushes to the cave. And they pull the stone away from the cave. And King Darius says, Daniel... Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? And I don't know if there was a pause in there. In the Bible, it just moves from one sentence to the next. But can you imagine if there's a pause, maybe there's an echo in the cave, and Daniel's trying to wait on the echo to get done? You know, lions, lions, lions. And then he, then he finally responds, may the king live forever. Isn't that awesome? What a line. Such respect for the person God has placed as the most powerful person on the planet. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. You know, just like in the fiery furnace, an angel was present. So in the cave, there was an angel there. 
They haven't harmed me. I was found innocent before him, before God, and also before you, your majesty. I have not done any harm. And so they pulled Daniel out, and then the rest of the story just gets kind of violent because well, these are violent people. But I want to go back to what Daniel read to, excuse me, what John read to us from chapter 6, verse 10. Have you ever found yourself reading a story and you've read it a bunch of times or a text of scripture and you've gone through it a hundred times, but every time you go back to it, if you're truly seeking for greater wisdom, there are these little lines and little words that just hit you like a ton of bricks. They just convict you. It's the smallest little detail, but man, there's one in this, this verse that's just really gotten me over the last couple of weeks. Daniel heard the document had been signed. He went back to his house. He went to his upstairs room, opened his window toward heaven, toward, excuse me, toward Jerusalem, prayed three times a day, gave thanks to his God. It's that line that's in bold and underlined, just as he had done before. I read that and it was like, wow, there it is. There's the message, just as he had done before. There's a... Uh, there was a lady named Corey Tinboom, who she and her family were responsible during the Jewish Holocaust for saving nearly or roughly 800 Jews from either being sent off to a Nazi prison camp or from being killed, where they would hide them in their home and in their storefront. And she's written a lot, and there's a line that she wrote that I find really fascinating. She said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? What a line. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is it there just in case of emergencies that you pull it out only when you most desperately need to? Or is it guiding the direction of your life? What I want us to think about this morning is the power that we can find in persistence. You've probably heard of a guy named Abraham Lincoln. I don't know how much you know about Abraham Lincoln, he failed in business at the age of 21. He was defeated in a legislative race at age 22, failed again at another business at age 24, lost his first wife at age 26, had a nervous breakdown at age 27, lost a congressional race at age 34 and 36, lost a senatorial race at age 45, failed to become vice president at age 47, lost a senatorial race at age 49, and then was finally elected the 16th president of the United States of the United States at age 52, receiving less than 40% of the popular vote. Talk about persistence. And if you think about Abraham Lincoln, who has a memorial in Washington, D.C., whose face is on Mount Rushmore, and for, for a lot of uh, historians, they would rank him as the second greatest president in the history of the United States, second only to George Washington. If he, after one setback, had bowed out, think about how different our country might just be today. There's this power that is found in persistence, but especially the power that is found in persistent prayer. I love that line about Dan Daniel that it said he did just as he had done before. I've got two questions for us this morning. Number one, how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? On a scale of one to 10, how would you rank it? One being barely existent, if existent at all. 10 being just super amazing. Just answer that question in your mind, honest assessment. And number two, are you consistent in it? I want to tell you, I stand before you today as somebody who struggles with prayer. I love to read God's word. Love to read God's word. I love to sing. 
I love to gather together with God's people. I love to break bread through communion, to break bread in meals. I love to serve. I love all of the other spiritual disciplines. The one that I have to spend the most amount of time working on, reminding myself diligently, is prayer. And so because of that, for me, this is a lesson that is convicting me first of the power of persistent and consistent prayer. It's not that I don't believe prayer isn't powerful. I do. It's that I've struggled with it since the day I gave my life to Christ. Because of that, for the next year, I want us to spend some extra time because I'm a little selfish in needing to spend that time for me in prayer, focusing on prayer as a church family. I hope you don't mind. But I usually teach me first and then try to teach you. But then also, because I believe as a church, there is so much more power that we can find as we gather together to pray. I'm going to share more about that with you come January. In the meantime, I want us to think about this power that is found in persistent prayer. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in prayer asking God to do powerful things, maybe even supernatural things. Maybe you're not asking God to deliver you from a den of lions, but have you ever found yourself praying for a loved one who needed a miracle? You needed God to step in and bring healing to their body. You're asking God to do something outside of the natural, something above the natural. Have you ever found yourself asking God for a job opportunity to work out? Have you ever found yourself pleading with God on behalf of a spouse or a child or a close loved one that hasn't surrendered their life to Jesus? Have you ever found yourself asking God to remove the sinful habit that's within your life? You see, the principle is there. If we want God to do the super, we've got to be willing to do the natural. If we want God to do the big things, we've got to be faithful in the little things. There was this uh, researcher named Daniel Chambliss, and he wanted to study Olympic athletes and find out what are the secrets to greatness. How can you become an Olympic athlete who wins all of these gold medals? And he wrote this paper entitled, Excellence is Mundane. It's really not an exciting read. It's rather boring. But there's a line out of his paper that I find really fascinating. He said, excellence requires doing small, ordinary things consistently right. Back in the 1980s, there was this Olympic swimmer named Rowdy Gaines. For you Auburn fans, he's an Auburn alum. So there's a little hope today, Jonathan, uh, for our Auburn fans. And he competed in the 1980s. He won three gold medals. He set 11 world records in his time as a competitive swimmer. But because in 1980, the United States boycotted the, U the uh, Olympics that year because it was in Moscow and the Cold War and everything that was going on in the world at that time, Rowdy Gaines didn't get to compete in 1980. Yet he was preparing to for the four years before 1980 and the four years afterward. He trained day after day. For eight years, he trained for races that lasted less than a minute. In fact, in his life, later in his life, he added up the number of miles that he swam to train for these races in 1984. An Olympic-sized pool is 50 meters. He decided, or he added up, that he swam roughly 20,000 miles miles for races that lasted less than a minute. Excellence 
is mundane. Excellence is getting in the pool day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, preparing for a moment in the future that you believe will come, that you know that it's going to have this massive payoff. And the thing that you're doing in the moment is reminding yourself of this future moment that in this mundanity, in this craziness of just doing this one thing over and over and over again, that in the future, it's going to set you up for success. All the time invested in preparation at some point in the future is hopefully going to pay off. When I read the story of Daniel, I think about the same thing. Excellence for Daniel was day after day, morning, lunch, and dinner, hitting his knees, prayer after prayer, asking God to be great in his life, surrendering his heart to God's plan, understanding in the future, there was probably going to come a time where his faith was going to be tested. And what's going to happen in that moment? He wanted that he was prepared. And the way that he prepared was day after day, prayer after prayer. Something that seems so small, but in the grand scheme of things paid off big time because when he needed a miracle in the lion's den, he didn't start praying. He did just as he had done before. There's power in persistent prayer. That's why James would write in James chapter five that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much or has much power. At some point in your life, you be faced with a situation that's going to test your faith. The amount of time that you and I spend on our knees in prayer is going to determine how prepared we are for that moment. My question for you and my question for me is, based off the last week, off of the last month, off of the last year, are you and I going to be ready for that moment? We have no idea what that moment will bring. We can only be aware of what it takes to be prepared, to do just as we have done before. There's power in persistent prayer. There's this story in 1 Samuel of this young woman named Hannah. She's married to this guy named Elkanah. Elkanah also has a second wife named Penina. The Bible gets kind of weird. We'll talk about all that later. And they're going to travel to Shiloh to make a sacrifice. Penina is able to have children. Hannah is childless. All she wants is a baby. Every year they go to Shiloh to make this sacrifice and she prays, God, give me a baby. Year after year, no answer. Finally, she prays, God, if you'll give me a baby, I'll give him back to you. And he'll live as a Nazarite. He'll take the Nazarite vow. He won't cut his hair. He won't drink any form of alcohol. He'll serve you every day of his life. After praying that prayer, God answered. God gave her a baby. You see, for Hannah, it wasn't until her prayer matched up with God's will that he was willing to answer it. It's not just about persistent prayer. It's about persistently praying for our will to match God's. It's not just about praying to God to do what we want him to do, thinking if I wear him down long enough, he will surrender to my will. That's not the goal. The goal of persistent prayer, the true power is found when I pray so much and when you pray so much that my will is shaped into his will. And we see that in the life of Hannah when she finally was willing to give this child back to the Lord. He answered because while she wanted a son, God needed a prophet. 
And when she was willing to turn him back over to God, he gave her a baby named Samuel, who would grow up to become one of Israel's greatest prophets. You see, the power in persistent prayer is when it persistently changes our hearts and turns our will back into the will of God. That's the power in persistent prayer. Here's the second takeaway. If we don't stand for God, excuse me, we cannot stand for God if we don't kneel for him first. I'm just really fascinated by that line in Daniel about doing what was done before. I'm fascinated by this line by Admiral McRaven about if we want to do the big things, we've got to be willing to do the little things. And this is so true because we live in this society that wants instant results. We don't want to wait on anything. Yet the greatest things in life truly come through taking the time to really focus on the little things and being prepared. I'm going to ask any of my people who grew up in the 90s, do you remember the original Karate Kid movie? Do you remember that scene when Sensei is talking with Daniel's son and he's waxing the car? Do you remember he said, wax on? What did he say, 90s kids? Wax off. Yeah. And Daniel get, Danielson gets so exasperated because he just wants to fight as a martial artist. But what he doesn't realize is that this simple little mundane task was preparing him for something great. And it wasn't until that moment, do you remember in the movie, where he blocks a hit and he realizes it was that waxing movement. And he began to put together what was actually going on. And it's just this reminder that if we truly want to take a stand for God, we've got to be willing to kneel to him first. I don't know what it is that you think needs to change about our world, about our church, about your life, about family. But I can tell you this, it won't change if you're not praying for it first. If we're not praying for a turn in our country's moral direction, it'll never turn. If we're not praying for revival to break out in our church, it won't happen. If you're not praying for the people that you work with, for them to be able to hear the story of Jesus, if you're not praying for your family, it doesn't follow the Lord, to meet Jesus, it won't happen. If you're not praying for your own purity, you won't have it. I don't know what's on your prayer list. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's thank you, God, for my daily bread. Can I add a couple of things to your prayer list this week? I want to plead with you to pray for our church to experience revival. It's not that I don't think we're not spiritual. I hope you're not offended by that. I believe we are spiritual. But I also believe that there is always room for God to consume more hearts and more of our hearts. Think about what it would look like for us to send every person back to the workplace, back to school, back to your neighborhoods, fully on fire for the Lord. That happens when we pray for revival. When we pray for God to fill each of us fully with his Holy Spirit. That can and will happen when we pray for it diligently. It may take an entire year, half a decade, two decades of prayer. But through faithful, consistent, persistent prayer, I firmly believe it will happen.
Who in your life needs to hear about Jesus? Maybe somebody that lives in your own house. Maybe the person that sits next to you at school, across from you at work, neighbor right next door that you've got a lot of small talk going on. Do you pray for them by name? Do you take their names before the throne room of God? Asking God to fill you with boldness and to open doors of opportunity. That you might talk to them about Jesus. About whether or not they have a relationship with him. It may never happen if you're not praying for it. And that door may not open for a year, five years, ten years, twenty years. For Daniel, it was 80 plus years of praying that prepared him to face the greatest challenge of his life. Are you willing to pray for the long haul? If you're in a dating relationship, are you praying for you and your significant other to live and to date in purity? Are you praying together for that to happen? If you're raising children, I know you're praying for your kids, but are you praying for them to grow up to follow Christ? Are you praying for their hearts to understand your heart, for them to have the heart of Christ, for you to have the heart of Christ, for your family to grow together in the spirit of Jesus and in the love that only God can give? These are some things we need to be praying for every day. And above all, we need to be praying for ourselves individually to fully surrender our lives to Christ Jesus. For our will to be his will. That's the power of persistent prayer. That's what happens when we kneel for God first to stand for him later. I read this story a few years ago about these early African converts to Christianity. And they truly believed in the power of prayer. And so they would regularly pray, diligently pray. And in fact, they would walk out into the thicket where they would each have their own private little spot where they could pour out their hearts to God. And because they would go to that place so often and regularly, it would wear a path down through the brush into their little private spot of their thicket. But what they noticed was that over time, they would have some brothers and sisters who would become negligent in their prayer because the grass would begin to grow on the path, and they would kindly go up to one another and say, my brother, my sister, the grass is growing on your path because they were neglecting their prayer. Let me ask you this. Is there grass growing on the path to your prayer place? Are you wearing down that path, whether it's physically or metaphorically in your life, to the place that you go to spend time in prayer? Or has it been a little while? Is it just been to say, thanks God, I appreciate it? Or is it to truly surrender your heart, to turn your life over to him? This is a place filled with broken people. So if you're broken, welcome home. We're glad you're here. If you're a Christian and you struggle to pray, I'm glad you're here. Come talk to me. We can grow together. If you're a brother or sister who has a vibrant prayer life, thank you. Please continue to be a prayer warrior praying over the things God is laying over your heart. If you're like me and it's a struggle, it's a daily reminder and you're trying to grow more and more in it, don't feel ashamed. Surrender that to God. Confess it to him today. If you want the prayers of this group and you want us to publicly pray for you, we'd love to do that. If you want to just spend a moment with one of our shepherds and just say,
I'm having a hard time right now and I need you to pray for me. I'm going through it and I've come to God late in this game and I haven't been praying for the years before to prepare me for this moment. I'm a little bit unprepared. We can gather around you. We can take your name before the throne and we will encourage you as much as we can and we will diligently pray every day this week and for the coming weeks and months over you. You want to give your life to the God who's given his son for you. We'd love to celebrate your baptism today as you surrender your life to the one who loves you more than you'll ever know. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please let us know as together we stand and sing. Kneel at the cross, Christ will meet you there.